Okay, I'm Dr. Ian e. McGregor from UTS Business School. Uh, I have been working and researching climate change for more than 17 years. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Ian McGregor. It's safe to say that Ian has committed his entire career to tackling this century's biggest challenge, global warming. Ian has attended every United Nations climate summit since 2009. He earned a place on Afghanistan's delegation for six of those summits in the lead up to the Paris Agreement in 2015. Ian and I spoke about climate refugees, the Indigenous voice in global debate, and the political systems best suited to tackling global warming. This is Think Sustainability. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Can you tell me a little bit about the work you've done in Afghanistan consulting with governments there about their climate change policy? The UN Environment Programme, uh, generally referred to as UNEP, um, invited me to come to Afghanistan to help the Afghan government prepare its intended nationally determined contribution to submit to the Paris Climate Summit. Um, regrettably, when I was there and it continues, the security situation is uh, very bad in Afghanistan. There was an improvised explosive device went off at least every day while I was there. Um, two rocket grenades hit a hillside um, near the UNEP office. The big issue in Afghanistan that is um, disappearing glaciers. So the east of Afghanistan goes into the edge of the Himalayas. And in that area, you have traditionally had glaciers that when they melted in the spring would provide uh, water for subsistence agriculture in the valleys below them. Now a number of those glaciers have actually totally disappeared. So there's no spring glacier melt. So subsistence agriculture is no longer viable. So people have left those areas and gone to Kabul where there's now a huge uh, fringe dwelling population because the Kabul's population has grown uh, hugely in recent years and these are often disaffected uh, people who are in the city are fringe dwellers to some extent in Kabul who are targets for recruitment by initially Taliban and more recently uh, Islamic State supporters um, to perpetrate terrorism both in Kabul and across the country. climate refugees. Mm -hmm. Do you think we're braced to kind of handle those populations of people and how do you see that unfolding? It really depends how severe climate change is, how bad um, sea level rise is, um, what is likely to happen. Let's take Indonesia first because it's it's our nearest uh, neighbour with a, a large population that, but is still likely to experience climate refugees. So Indonesia um, has 270 million people and um, it really is a short boat trip uh, to Australia. That's where um, most of the uh, boat people left for um, to come to Australia. Um, none of those boat people were actually Indonesians. They were more Afghan, Iraqi um, people who had uh, got through Asia to Indonesia. Uh, as a launching point to, to try to get to Australia. 
but if you're in an Indonesian fishing village, um, your land is being inundated by rising sea levels, um, more typhoons are taking out your village, etc. It might be very tempting to put your family and relatives, etc., all on the fishing boat and sail to Australia. So you could have millions of vulnerable Indonesians uh, fleeing uh, as climate change refugees to Australia. And what's happening in Bangladesh at the moment? Yeah, Bangladesh is even more vulnerable than Indonesia. It is a very low-lying country uh, with a very dense population, so it's got 170 million people. Most of them live in the low-lying delta areas, and the low-lying delta areas are vulnerable from two directions. First, the the rivers tend to flood as the glaciers melt in the Himalayas, and that water comes uh, downstream, um, causing the flooding you've seen in India, and also uh, often causing flooding in Bangladesh, and rising sea levels coming up from the other direction, uh, flooding the the delta, inundated by um, seawater or brackish water, and in estuaries, uh, will not make uh, them able to grow rice, which uh, is critical to supporting the 170 million people who live in Bangladesh. And it is one of the uh, least developed countries, so it's one of the poorest countries in the world, so it has very few resources to adapt to climate change. If we're talking about potential scenarios for Australia and the future of looking after these refugees, what's the best case scenario and the worst case? Taking a a fairly worst case on on climate change, that we have millions of people fleeing here from Indonesia and Bangladesh because because of climate change, rising sea levels, flooding, etc., that those become unlivable places and they certainly have less resources to adapt to climate change than we do. On the more negative scenario, you could see millions of people trying to flee from those areas and Australia trying to turn back the boats and getting into security and conflict issues with Indonesia. Um, as we try to sort of defend our shores against these um, climate refugees. And we're not quite equipped to deal with that at the moment anyway. So it might be a great opportunity to have increased settlement in the northern parts of Australia. We could build much more climate-proof cities, uh, enhance our agriculture in those regions um, and have um, large cities that house these climate change refugees and create new industries. What will the future of democracy or international relations look like when centred around a climate emergency? What will democracy look like? So if you want to address climate change, maybe you don't want democracy, which is, I know is a very radical statement, but... In India, people like Adani, etc., the, the coal lobby, the car lobby, etc., are hugely influential and provide lots of campaign donations to the Indian government. Um, so you know, the Indian government is very slow at moving away from fossil fuels. I, I see India like Australia, where there's huge power inside the you know Canberra, you know New Delhi, or Washington of the fossil fuel lobby in terms of stopping addressing climate change. In Australia, in Canberra, the power of you know the coal lobby, the um, gas lobby, etc., um, the the coal fire electricity lobby in Canberra. You know, crazy people suggesting we build a new coal fire power station. And one of the reasons that China, I believe, has been much more effective in terms of its climate change policy is because it doesn't have a democracy. So the Chinese government sees climate change as a huge threat. They've got potentially, you know, reduced water supply from less glaciers in the Himalayas, which feed a lot of the Chinese rivers. They've got rising sea levels threatening big cities like Shanghai. Um, They know 
they're well aware, strangely enough, the National Academy of Sciences in China reports directly to the Central Committee of the Communist Party. So the scientists and social scientists, the, the social science bodies in a similar position, are closely involved with the policy in the Chinese level. And China has got other reasons moving away from coal because of pollution in the cities, etc. Uh, China has, you know, built. I believe last year, China put in more renewable energy than the rest of the world combined. Um, so China gets the problem, um, and it, um, you know, is addressing the problem. If I wanted to set up or was working with a human rights NGO in China, I might have significant problems. But if I'm working with an environmental NGO in China, I'm supported. The Worldwide Fund for Nature (WWF) has its um, headquarters in China, inside part of the imperial city, the sort of former palace. They have worked with the Chinese government on climate change for more than 20 years, and so the Chinese government is quite supportive of other organisations that support its policy on climate change. What does it mean to declare a climate emergency? I'd say, regrettably, very little. I've heard all sorts of framing of climate change before, you know, from Kevin Rudd's The Greatest Moral Challenge of Our Time, um, to the climate crisis, to, yeah, etc. In fact, the Vilak Declaration of 1985, believe it or not, of the UN Environment Programme, World Meteorologic Office, and the International Council of Scientific Unions, said we were conducting a dangerous experiment with the Earth's climate by inducing warming by burning fossil fuels. Since 1985, global emissions of greenhouse gases have increased by about 70%, despite the scientific warning that we were creating a dangerous experiment back then. The parts per million in the atmosphere of carbon dioxide were 280 pre-industrial levels, currently are past 400. So we've had almost a 50% increase in CO2 in the atmosphere. In the lead up to Copenhagen, I was working with Bill McKibben and a pile of other environmental activists with an organization called 350.org. And the reason it's called 350 is actually based on strong scientific evidence and scientific research by um, you know, leading climate scientists working in NASA who got asked by Bill, what is the safest, safe level of CO2 in the atmosphere? And they said, probably keeping CO2 below 350. So we've now passed 400. So that we are into dangerous global warming territory. I mean, it is a horrendous problem. And if we don't address it uh, for your generation and my children's generation, you're going to face a very difficult to cope with planet in, by 2050. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney 
and is heard around Australia on the community radio network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Karkatzel. Thanks for your company.